This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. For this episode, we'll hear from Brad Winnick, the Chief Public Defender in Dauphin County and the President of the Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and from Elizabeth Randall, ACLU PA's Legislative Director. Brad and Liz joined me to discuss Marcy's Law, a proposed amendment to the state constitution that purports to give victims of crimes constitutional rights, but potentially at great cost to the fundamental rights of people who are accused of a crime. Brad and Liz explain why this proposal is so problematic. In the discussion, we talk about how Marcy's Law affects other issues that the ACLU has been working to reform, including cash bail and the death penalty. We did not discuss this in the conversation you'll hear, but Marcy's Law also impacts the jailing of people who are too poor to pay their fines and fees by granting victims a constitutional right to timely restitution, including from children who have been adjudicated delinquent. ACLUPA has written a lot about Marcy's Law, and we will include various links in the show notes. You can also find some materials at aclupa.org slash bills. Before we get to the discussion, though, I want to let you know that Speaking Freely is going to host our first live podcast. We'll be at the ACLU 100 exhibit in Philadelphia the evening of Thursday, May 23rd. ACLU 100 is an interactive exhibit that celebrates the ACLU's upcoming centennial and that has been touring the country. The exhibit will be in Philadelphia May 22nd and 23rd at the 23rd Street Armory at 22 South 23rd Street. That's a lot of 22s and 23s. May 22nd and 23rd at the 23rd Street Armory, which is at 22 South 23rd Street. So if you're in the Philadelphia area or want an excuse to go to Philly, I definitely encourage you to check it out. You can find more information about the exhibit at aclupa.org slash aclu100. That's 100, the numerals, 100. The live podcast will be held the evening of May 23rd during a happy hour with our Young Leadership Outreach Team. As part of the live podcast, we're going to have a Q&A session when people in attendance will ask questions about the hot civil liberties issues. Even if you can't be there in person, you can participate by sending your questions to speakingfreely at aclupa.org. We will collect questions over the next few weeks, and we might read yours during the live podcast. Again, email us at speakingfreely at aclupa.org with your burning question about civil liberties. All right, let's hear from Brad Winnick and Liz Randall talking about Marcy's Law. This conversation was recorded on April 17th. Well, Brad and Liz, thanks for taking the time to talk today about Marcy's Law. And this feels like an issue that is really best suited for a podcast because it's like one of these issues that really requires a lot of explaining and pulling on different threads. Uh, Liz and I have been writing f- communications for our members the last couple months and trying to boil this down to a couple sentences has been a bit of a challenge. So let's start at the top. And from your perspective, what is Marcy's Law? So very simply put, which uh, is sort of at the heart of part of your question, which in some ways, Marcy's Law is very easy to explain, which is it is a legislative proposal to amend the Pennsylvania state constitution to include a crime victim's bill of rights. 
And so, which sounds, of course, completely, you know, um, it sounds great. I mean, who, who could possibly object to that? Um, so uh, in looking through this um, proposal, we have come across, you know, we, there are a lot of questions that it triggered. And so um, in many ways, uh, a lot of the provisions that uh, this proposal, this constitutional amendment proposal um, would do is to include um, certain, say, like things that are already actually included for victims that are protected um, for victims in the Pennsylvania Crime Victims Act in the statute. Um, and so largely these revolve around um, the right to be notified during criminal proceedings, um, at both um, before, um, during, and after a um, conviction process. So the right to be notified, the right to be heard, and the right to be present um, at different stages of the process. Um, and so as we were looking through that, um, you know, we were sort of reading it through a victim's rights perspective um, and sort of seeing if there was anything new um, or additional that it was claiming to provide to victims that were not already um, established under statute. Um, but then there are new provisions that are added that do not currently exist in statute that we think really raise some very serious constitutional questions. Before we get too far into our concerns about it, and Brad, you're also president, besides being chief public defender for Dauphin County, you're president of uh, Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, who also have been out there on this, on this bill. We'll talk a little bit about Pactel's concerns. Um, but let's just talk about process real quick. Liz, you're our, you are our hill rat. <laughs> you're, you're, you're our staffer in the Capitol. Let's explain the process. This is a constitutional amendment. So how does that work? So for those unfamiliar with how the process for amending the Pennsylvania state constitution, the state legislature um, needs to propose language that is passed in both chambers, both in the House and in the Senate, with the identical language in two consecutive sessions which means, and so um, Pennsylvania has two-year legislative sessions. Um, so last session, which ended um, you know, at the end of the calendar year last year, uh, they passed uh, a Senate bill, uh, I think it was 1011, and that, passed, that language passed and it was reintroduced this session. Uh, and it is now uh, both a House bill and a Senate bill that are running concurrently. After those pass both chambers, um, uh, then it does not go to the governor. It skips to the, from the governor, and it goes right onto the ballot. Ostensibly, you know, presumably, what I, I believe what they're tr they're shooting for is to try to get it on the general election ballot in November. And then it's a referendum for the voters to then vote yes or no on whether or not to include it to amend the constitution with this language. So, Brad, you're in the arena every day as chief public defender for Dauphin County, and as I said, you're also president of PACTA. Let's start to pull apart some of the issues around this proposal. What are your top concerns about Marcy's law? Well, the, the idea of the proponents of, of Marcy's law is to build into the constitutional, constitutional right that the bill itself says will be uh, uh, defended as vigorously as the constitutional rights of, of the defendant. And at the same time, those proponents are, are out there um, touting this bill, saying that it's not going to, though, infringe on any of the rights of criminal defendants. Now, the rights of these criminal defendants are, are uh, they're, in, they're in the Pennsylvania Constitution, they're in the U.S. Constitution, they're in the Bill of Rights, not just the foundation of the criminal justice system, but frankly, of our form of government. And we're talking 230 years of, 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 of American history. And I think the idea that we're going to give enforceable rights to victims, and I think we're going to get to talking about 
you know, the, the whole idea of a victim, too, um, without infringing on the rights of defendants, to me, is ludicrous. And right before we even get into any of the specific proposals within Marcy's Law, from a, from a philosophical standpoint, I mentioned the, the, the definition of victim. The fact that Marcy's Law will, will give alleged victims, there's the defense attorney in me, <laughs> but it's an important point, will give alleged victims rights at stages pre-conviction from the setting of bail uh, to, to, to plea, to, set to, um, uh, to anything related to either uh, conviction or incarceration. To me, right there, we are usurping the presumption of innocence. Um, you know, as, as existing law stands, victims have certain rights in probation and parole matters. They have the right to be heard at sentencing. But at that point, they have been determined beyond a reasonable doubt and, and having pierced the presumption of innocence to be victims. Um, I understand that people out there are victimized. And I understand that there are people who have suffered real injury. And regardless of who done it, so to speak, someone has been hurt. Someone has been uh, punched. They've been shot. Um, but the reality is, within the legal system, how they got hurt has not been established. Um, my office had a case very recently, which wound up being an acquittal, in which it was a, 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 a case of alleged violence where the person was found not guilty and it was determined, well, we don't know exactly what the jury said, but the argument was there was evidence that they had gotten drunk and walked into a telephone pole and the defendant was acquitted. That person turns out not to have been a victim, although they were injured. Um, and so I think the proponents are really glossing over, and this is something we're not supposed to gloss over, the idea that not just people are only found guilty once uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, but victims are only victims once those findings are made beyond a reasonable doubt. And from there, that sort of sets the tone for the rest of all these proposals and how all of these constitutional um, problems uh, play out and are viewed. So I wonder if you could tease out a little bit how this would, if you know even, uh, how this would play out potentially, because the supporters themselves have said they want victims' rights to be equal to the rights of the accused in the Constitution. So what, a, what kind of a position would that put a judge in then to have to weigh these potentially competing constitutional rights against each other? I have no I idea. Right? <laughs> right. So, and I know there's a few, and Liz can speak to, 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 to some I know too. The, the most immediate one to me, the one that jumps out, is that victims will now have essentially the right to a speedy trial. I, I, I think it's phrased as prompt disposition without undue delay or, or, or some language like that. Now, the, the criminal defendant has a due process right to conduct a thorough investigation, the right to secure counsel, uh, for counsel to be adequately prepared to consult with them, and all sorts of things that, that we call due process that frankly take time. And there is already a check on how much time, and that's the judge and the attorney for the Commonwealth being able to stand up in court and to uh, have a ruling be made that balances the Commonwealth's interest 
versus the defendant's constitutional interests. Now we have an alleged victim who has a right to have their prompt disposition, uh, uh, the right of prompt disposition, enforced either on their own or through the attorney for the Commonwealth. So I wind up with these questions. What happens when a criminal defendant stands up in front of a judge and says, Judge, we request a continuance so that we can seek additional discovery or conduct further investigation or engage in further plea negotiations? And uh, regardless of the position the Commonwealth takes, because frankly, I don't know that it matters, what happens when an alleged victim stands up and says, I object. This has gone on too long. If that would happen now, we wouldn't be hearing from the victim. But if the Commonwealth would assert on behalf of a victim that, that desire, that, that position, I think the court's analysis is pretty easy because the defendant's constitutional right would trump. But now we're going to have, as the language of the bill says, equal constitutional rights between the defendant and the victim. So what does the court do there? I don't know what the court does there. And, and, and worse, there's no guidance for what the court should do. And I suspect that you're going to have judges doing different things on a case-by-case basis. And there will be criminal defendants whose due process rights are violated. I'm also curious what happens when it's the uh, Commonwealth making a request for a continuance. And a victim objects to that. I'm glad you brought that up because as a longtime death penalty abolitionist, this is literally the DA's talking point about capital punishment in Pennsylvania. The language of Marcy's law is that they have a constitutional right to be free of, quote, unreasonable delay and a prompt and final conclusion of the case in any related post-conviction proceedings. And within the context of a death penalty case, this becomes uh, increasingly um, uh, contradictory. Because in, in, in the past few years, the, the idea of what constitutes due process and the effective, or the effective assistance of counsel in a death penalty case has drastically changed. You know, we have now what we didn't have 20 years ago, which are mitigation specialists who are going out and conducting incredibly thorough investigations of a, of a defendant's life. Uh, back to childhood, involving education, uh, uh, family relationships, mental health, um, medical issues. And we as a society have decided we want that to happen because if we're going to have a death penalty, I think most people who would even support a death penalty say, we want to make sure that we're only doling it out uh, in, in, in the most appropriate case. And so these, these things take time. Um, they, they, they take a lot of time. And is there going to be a different standard uh, in, in a death penalty case? Uh, again, that's left to judges. To Brad's point, though, I think this can also be read um, in the other direction in terms of the speedy trial kind of question and, and the speed with which something is resolved and its effect on due process. So um, not only is there the right to, um, uh, let's just say, sort of speedy trial, I think it says, um, so the language is the right to proceedings free from unreasonable delay and a prompt and final conclusion of the one that you just read, um, a prompt and final conclusion of the case and any related post-conviction proceedings. Additionally, there is, um, there is an additional provision that says the right to reasonable and timely notice of and to be present at all public proceedings involving the, the uh, criminal or delinquent conduct. Um, and so, which means that what happens when um, the 
where uh, whether it's the um, district attorney's office, whether it's Office of Victim Services, let's say they can't locate the victim to provide the notification, but they're trying. They've lost the phone number or what have you. And so to what extent are there, this has happened in other states where Marcy's Law has been adopted, where court proceedings are significantly slowed down be because they need time to identify and find the victim in order to notify, and then the scheduling. So what happens if a victim is unavailable, if they are on vacation? Does the judge delay the court proceedings in, you know, to an extent where now you have the defendant saying, hey, I have a right, to, you know, this needs to continue. Everybody else is ready to go, but we can't find the victim or we need to wait until the victim returns or is available or their work schedule is freed up in such a way that it allows them to be present um, at some of these proceedings. And so you have it working in both directions. And so this is what happens when you you know, establish or at least are attempting to establish co-equal rights that are as vigorously defended as those of the accused, then it is altogether unclear. You are, it is an absolute recipe for um, two sets of rights that are going to run headfirst into one another. And how that gets resolved is anybody's guess. There's no provision. There's no explanation or provision or instructions about how a judge is supposed to balance or weigh those. It's it's a complete question mark. That's a, that's a good point. And as as you were ranting, I started a new rant. I started a new rant in my head that I don't know that I'd done to the lawyer, the lawyers on my office haven't heard yet, which is, you know, in a lot of systems, and again, Pennsylvania is a system, you know, 67 counties, 67 systems, uh, how often you come to court, who you go to court in front of, what the, 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 what the proceeding is called and what it's for. But whenever my client goes in front of a judge for whatever type of hearing, one of the uh, one of the things we have the right to do and can be addressed at that point is bail. Mm -hmm. So my my thought is if if an alleged victim wasn't given notice of the pretrial hearing on the defendant's motion to suppress and is not there, can therefore the bail a bail application not be made? Would a judge say I can't hear that? Well, it's funny that you brought that up because as Liz was ranting I, in my own head, I, I was also thinking about bail. And my thinking was that you may have someone who was ordered cash bail and they're too poor to post it. Um, so they're sitting in jail. They're trying to resolve this as quickly as possible. If victim services can't reach the victim for whatever reason, well, then what happens is this person continue to sit in jail simply because they don't have the money to get themselves out. You, you know what I think is even more concerning to me? Because, and I shouldn't assume anything, but, but, but I will. Let's, for sake of argument, say that somewhere in the application of all this, there will be some um, due diligence standard. So that if, if, if a judge says, hey, is the victim here? And the attorney for the Commonwealth says, or a victim advocate says, no, Your Honor, they're not, but we... We complied with the rules, whatever they turn out to be. We sent a letter to the known address. We made a phone call, and they're not here. I would assume that would be good enough. But what I want to know is what's going to happen to the defendant's rights when whoever is charged, and I don't know who that is, whoever is charged with giving this notice to, to, to victims just doesn't do their job. What happens then? What happens when it's a bail hearing and... The Commonwealth shows up and says, nah, didn't send that letter. Does the bail hearing get continued? Because, because now it wasn't the victim's fault. 
that they're not there. But does the defendant lose their right to have their 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 liberty decided on this day? Does it have to be put to another day? Sentencing is my more concerning issue. Uh, the same issue with sentencing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot a lot of additional rants going through my head, but I think um, you know in that. You know, if we back up for a second, one of the, um, you know, this was a question about what the the enforcement mechanism is within Marcy's Law, which is a, also a big question mark and, an, and a question that has, I don't think I've seen a, it's been asked um, and I think poorly answered or at least confusingly answered because, you know, what the, what Marcy's Law is attempting to rectify, the problem they are attempting to address um, with this uh, constitutional amendment is there are many victims who are frustrated because they're not getting notification on time. Um, they are not able to participate in the way that our current statute allows them to participate. And that's understandable. No one is, you know, denying the fact that it would be incredibly frustrating if you wanted to provide a victim impact statement, <clears throat> if you wanted notification for, um, you know, if someone was released from custody. But those agencies the, uh, that are responsible for providing the notification are the Office of Victim Services. Um, it is the district attorney's offices, uh, probation and parole, which also includes juvenile, the Department of Public Welfare, Department of Corrections. So each of there are many agencies within the Commonwealth that have responsibilities depending on where you are in this process to notify and or to include victims in that part of the process. And so to Brad's point, you know, what happens when someone doesn't do this? Well, the, the odd twist and turn is, is that on, in some ways, the victim still doesn't have rights in this. They are specifically excluded from um, being able, they are still identified and defined as not being a party to the case because victims are not parties to cases. Um, and that they also cannot sue for damages. Um, and it specifically holds harmless any agency of the Commonwealth in addition to any member of the court. And so when asked, how does elevating these set of rights in, into the Constitution enforce them in some way that is either currently unenforced um, in the statute or provides a different mechanism of enforcement just because you've included them in the Constitution? It's not clear how um, that question would get answered. And if it's, you know, there could be other ways legally of trying to hold um, an agency responsible for failing to notify, but I'll tell you what, the victim won't be able to do that, him or herself. And so to me, it's kind of, um, it's an odd way to promise something to victims in terms of giving them a, a bigger voice um, and sort of an equal voice, if you will, um, to those of the, that voice of the accused in a way that it is altogether unclear how this, um, the, what the mechanism is to hold those agencies responsible for failing to notify. And, but at the same time, and this is the scariest part to me from a constitutional standpoint. The, the, the sentencing scenario I mentioned a second ago and this issue of enforcement, because Liz is right. It doesn't tell us at all how enforcement uh, uh, should happen, but it tells us they have the ability or the right to seek enforcement of the rights granted to them in Marcy's Law, meaning the victims. It uses the word enforce. And then it goes on, as Liz said, to, told us all, to tell us all the things they cannot do. It never tells us what they can do. But by inference, mm -hmm. it leaves open, especially in this sentencing scenario, one option. And that is the scenario where it is time for sentencing. And let's again, hypothetically say, whoever is supposed to give this notice to the victim does not. Didn't do it. 
Um, and the judge says, I don't care. We're moving forward in violation of this victim's rights, this victim's right under Marcy's law. And the defendant is sentenced. Well, the, the victim finds out they're ticked off. They cannot sue. They can bring no cause of action against anyone. But they have a right of enforcement. What would that right of enforcement be? The only one I can think of would be to have the district attorney file a motion to vacate the sentence. Um, and then we have a problem that's called double jeopardy. But, you know, and a lot of us who, who think the Constitution is this pretty important thing would say, <laughs> well, double jeopardy wins. You can't. Double jeopardy, is a, that's a big deal. But, but now there's an equal constitutional right that was just violated by the victim. And while this sounds crazy to me, um, I think the three of us all know this is being litigated in Philadelphia right now by uh, a district attorney's office attempting to make this argument even before we have Marcy's Law. Um, and I think that certainly, you know, knock on wood, that has to fail. But I don't know what happens when we have a Marcy's Law. I don't know what else the enforcement would be. And to then to Liz's point, Resentencing, or yeah, resentencing, which of course is a you know is, is still a double jeopardy, you know, the double jeopardy problem. And if double jeopardy wins, well, then then the the the, the victim advocate uh, uh, advocates out there who are who are you know putting forward Marcy's law with without regard for this the complicating scenario I just said are doing a disservice to victims because they're not going to have an enforceable right. If, in fact, in this scenario, um, double jeopardy trumps Marcy's law. Um, so we've covered a fair amount of ground. Um, what else? Is there anything else that, you, that either of you think that folks really need to know about Marcy's law? Did, did we want to talk about that other, the other provision? There's that one other provision around the, um, the right to withhold. Um, for the victim to withhold information discovery. discovery right. right. So let me let me just read. I have that quoted here. So it says that um, the person who has identified themselves as the victim has a right to refuse an, an interview, deposition, or other discovery request made by the accused or any person acting on behalf of the accused. Now, as the two three of us were talking in advance of of this discussion, it seems like there's a lot of confusion about that and. Um, I would probably want to start at what is current law? Like what can the, the person who has identified themselves as the, as the victim, what can they refuse right now? They, they, they don't have to speak to the defense. And frankly, um, no one does, victim or otherwise. Uh, there is no witness to a case. And ultimately, the alleged victim is a, is a witness uh, like any other eyewitness. Um, no one has to speak to the defense. Um, now, as far as the whole use of the discovery part of this is unusual to me, and I don't quite understand it in the, in the criminal context. Um, and I don't know if this has applicability, quite frankly, to civil litigation, and that was what was intended. Because in the criminal context, we do not make, meaning we, the defense, does not make discovery requests of victims. We make discovery requests of the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth's discovery obligations are to provide us what they have in their possession. If they don't have it in their possession, they don't have to. It's not, uh, it's not a discovery issue for them to do my bidding and go get something from the alleged victim. Mm -hmm. In that case, I would issue a subpoena 
um, as we do cystecum to, to, to come and produce something to me. Now, are they, is, is Marcy's Law intending to limit my subpoena power? If they're talking about discovery, do they understand the difference between criminal and civil, or do they, and are they just intending this to be civil? The deposition thing is odd to me as well, because depositions are not common practice, and they're not something we can do in criminal law as a matter of course without court order for certain situations. If, uh, you know, if a, if a witness is ill and we are concerned that they may not be able to, be able to testify at trial, we can do a trial deposition. That would happen by court order. Does Marcy's law give a victim the right to refuse that even in the existence of a court order? That's the only situation. I can't send notice of deposition to someone and just take their deposition. So I don't know exactly what the harm is they're attempting to fix. And this may, this is the one that confuses me the most, this whole provision. This may be totally meaningless. And if it is meaningless, then we're running a big risk by putting such confusing language into our constitution because I don't know what judges are going to do. I don't know if this is going to wind up being interpreted to limit my subpoena power or limit a court's ability to order someone to appear for a deposition. Right. I mean, and so, you know, I've asked about this provision and, um, you know, what, what is to Brad's point. So currently, you know, so the argument was, um, we are only elevating what is current practice, and we are putting that into the Constitution. We are, we are um, codifying this into the Constitution. Well, but as Brad said, the current practice is not that victims are made. There is no direct request that is made to victims specifically. It is made, you know, by the attorneys um, from the, you know, the prosecution and the defense. So because it's not current practice, um, to Brad's point, um, again, if is this creating some new um, enforceable like law or um, mechanism whereby victims can refuse something? Um, if it's not, um, and it's, as he said also, possibly meaningless, then it seems like it's alarming window dressing that sounds like it's, uh, it's providing additional protection for victims that really has no substance because that's not how it works. You know, it's not how this works kind of, you know, meme. And, um, and so, um, you know, but again, I think it's worth underscoring that there's a lot in this, in Marcy's law that is unclear and that is yet to be determined how this is going to function in a real world scenario. And so, you know, as a result, um, this is not really the way to go about um, writing new law and certainly not how we should be amending our constitution if we have issues around speedy trial, um, you know, bail, uh, due process issues, um, right to effective counsel. I mean, there's a whole host of constitutional questions that this, that Marcy's law elicits and raises questions about that I think are incredible. The fact that we are even having, that we can pose questions that are unanswered by this language is incredibly alarming and dangerous. You know, amending the constitution is not something that we should take lightly. Um, we have had, neither chamber has had hearings in, you know, over two consecutive sessions. You, one would think, I don't care if you love, hate, or f are indifferent to what this amendment says, it would be really nice to have, you know, a, a hearing so that you could get both sides of this and really drill down, but um, that hasn't happened. Um, and if they really wanted to provide um, some real enforcement, I mean, you know, victims at the very least want 
more timely notification. And if they don't get it, I think some of them would want some recourse. So that seems to me to be the problem that Marcy's Law has identified. The problem is, is that the people responsible for the notification, namely victim services, district attorney's offices, uh, probation and parole, um, Department of Corrections, et cetera, those are the agencies that are responsible for the notifications. So one would think, why don't you just amend the, you know, add a funding mechanism, increase the funding and personnel so that there are more people in those offices. Um, you know, the DA's association and, you know, Office of Victims and the Victim Advocate for the Commonwealth are huge proponents and supporters and, you know, have been trying to advance Marcy's Law. Well, their offices are sort of the ones responsible for providing the notification, um, and yet there's no enforcement mechanism. So if victims aren't being notified and there's nothing in Marcy's Law that provides additional resources to provide those notifications in a more timely fashion, and it's unclear what the enforcement mechanism is for victims when they do not receive notification and they want some sort of remedy. That's also unclear. So I'm not sure, A, what this does for victims, most importantly for, um, for those who would want these sorts of protections. And secondly, the new language that is added creates you know, huge uh, questions constitutionally that sets up rights, competing rights that are running headfirst into one another and, could, and nobody knows how those are going to get resolved. And, you know, I, I would hope that, and, but I've already been found to be wrong here in hoping this, that even the most ardent supporter of victim, victims' rights, and I don't really know, this is one of those issues, you know, this is like uh, animal cruelty laws, right? Everyone lo loves those. We, we like puppies, and how can we not like victims? And I, and, and I mean that sincerely. But Liz hit the nail on the head. With and we brought full circle from when you asked about process at the beginning, that there have been no hearings on this. No matter how strongly you feel about victims' rights, and frankly, the stronger you feel, the more you should be making sure that, that what you're intending here really will come to pass and that this really will be a benefit for victims. The fact that there have been no hearings, th the issues we're raising today, I would hope that at some point, for the sake of victims, the proponents of Marcy's Law in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, be they in the General Assembly, in the Office of Victim Advocate, sat down and raised these same questions. And if they did, then why aren't we having hearings so that everyone who has an interest in the criminal justice system and in our Constitution can come together and say, well, let's fix this. Let's do this in a way that really does, as has been stated protect victims and grant victims more better service than perhaps they've received so far in a way that doesn't undermine our own constitution. I mean, not just the federal constitution, but the one that we've written here in Pennsylvania. These things obviously matter to us too, due process and double jeopardy. So Liz, where do we go from here? This bill is on the verge of passage. It passed last session, as you mentioned. It had just passed the House again um, for its second go-round, and now there's a Senate version which is out of committee. The House version that passed the House is now in committee in the Senate. Um, what can people do? So, you know, at this juncture, there's only a few steps left uh, before it goes on the ballot. And so the next step is um, trying to encourage um, the Senate Judiciary Committee to have a hearing, and it's a, on the House bill. They had just reported out their identical version of Marcy's Law. Um, but really, they are going to be the last stop before this gets to the Senate floor for a full vote. 
Um, so we are encouraging people to, um, for those people who live in, um, actually they could call their senator um, and ask them for a hearing, even though it will be the Senate Judiciary Committee. So if you happen to live in a district of a member who's on the Judiciary Committee, um, we're going to be asking members to contact them directly, um, but then also to oppose Marcy's Law when it gets to the floor of the Senate. Um, we think it's probably an uphill battle um, because it really, you know, as Brad was saying, you know, this is a very difficult bill uh, to message on. It sounds, you know, right out of the gate until you get into this level of detail, which most people are not necessarily inclined, maybe not interested in doing. Um, it's difficult to see where some of these pitfalls are. And so, you know, after that, then they have to draft the ballot question and it goes on the ballot and then it'll be up to the voters to decide. And so, you know, I think we also would need to pay some close attention to what the ballot language is. Um, and how that's phrased so that, you know, there have been two states that um, Kentucky's version of Marcy's Law has currently been uh, blocked from implementation because they had to pull their language. Um, it ended up already being printed on the ballot, um, but their language phrasing was problematic. And Florida's had to change theirs because it didn't pass their truth in advertising um, rules. And so I think um, making sure that voters understand exactly what Marcy's Law does and does not do is going to be important so that the voters can make an informed decision when they go to the ballot. All right, Liz and Brad, thank you both for your time and for your insight. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again to Brad Winnick and Liz Randall. To learn more about Marcy's Law and other bills we're watching at the state legislature, visit aclupa.org bills. We will also include links to a blog post and an action alert about Marcy's Law in the show notes. That brings episode 23 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be free.